Father, we come to you, and we come to you in the name of Jesus. Father, we are but nothing without Christ, and we have no place in you without him. But we thank you that you have sent him, that you have delivered us, that you have adopted us and made us your own. Father, in this time we seek you, that you may have our eyes look to Christ, that you may set our hearts ablaze, that we may be compelled to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, help us to see clearly the perfections of who you are and the perfections of your great work you've done for us in Christ, that it may motivate us to worship you in spirit and in truth, for you are worthy of this. So, Father, we give this time to you, and we ask that your will be done in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, you know, to motivate us to live for the glory of God, we want to look at this perfect work of salvation that God accomplished through Jesus Christ. Because the Christian life by no means is not insignificant whatsoever. It's part of something huge, something that stretches from eternity past and ends up in eternity future. This plan of God that includes us, his people, is outside of time, is outside of space. And all of God's power and wisdom has brought about this great plan. Even though our day-to-day lives, we have other things trying to grab our attention. We've got hardship, trials, sin trying to bring us down, family members, workplaces, all types of things trying to grip our attention and tear our hearts this way and and uh, turn our eyes that way. But today, we seek to look to Christ. We seek to uh, discover the riches of God and the riches of God's perfection in this marvellous work of salvation, that we may be in awe of who God is, that we may be delighted in what God has done, and that this may compel us in a certain direction. This perfect work of salvation is absolutely wonderful, and it's really spelled out here in Ephesians 1. It's a marvellous work, it's a definite work, and it's made by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit. The work of salvation is absolutely certain, and the reason why it's so certain is because it is set in the divine perfections of God. Salvation is not man giving God permission to uh, release the power of salvation, but rather it is the wisdom and power of God being released out of the divine perfections of God which secure salvation for those whom the Father gave to the Son. So let's turn our attention as we go through the Father, the Son and the Spirit, let's turn our attention and discover why this work of salvation is so perfect and so certain. First of all, we see in God 3, sorry, first we see in verse 3, that God is the one who initiates salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one who initiates salvation. Salvation does not start with man. It doesn't start with man's decision. It starts with God. He is the one who initiates salvation. Verse 3 can simply be summarized like this. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is being praised because he is worthy. 
And the grounds for him being so worthy is that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which is simply to refer to all of the work of the Holy Spirit that is done in the Christian's life. And everything that Christian receives through God's saving act in Christ. In other words, everything that belongs to Christ is given to the believer. And we enter into this heavenly state through our union with Christ. It is the infinite riches of God, the unmeasurable goodness of God, all of his love, all of his mercy, all of his faithfulness and compassion, everything that belongs to Christ is given to the believer. I think I mentioned last time I was here that this is rags to riches beyond our comprehension. Those who were dead in their sin receive by the grace of God the heavenly riches in Christ. All of God's kindness, all of his compassion, it is given to those that God chose to save. And Paul sees this as the grounds to burst out in thanksgiving. And if you look at this verse, these verses 3 to 14, it's one long sentence in the Greek. And it's an outburst of praise. It's a song, a song of thanksgiving. It's as if Paul can't contain how excited he is because he understands how wonderful this work is. And how certain it is because of the Father, because of the Son, and because of the Holy Spirit. So let the praise begin. In verse 4, we see, he chose us. This verb simply is, it's a past tense hours verb, it simply means to pick out or to select for oneself. It also communicates that the selecting for oneself was done with an intentional purpose, which we'll look at a bit later. But it's very simple. He, God the subject, chose us, the object. We didn't choose him, he chose us. Election is the chief blessing whereby every single other blessing flows out of. God chooses us and all of the riches are given to those whom he chose. Therefore, election is the greatest of blessings in some sense. Election is the very cause by, that is behind this outburst of praise that Paul is giving here. It's the main point. It's the main proof and testimony and dec that declares that God indeed is worthy to be praised. Why? Because election is the very point in eternity past that God chose unconditionally to lavish his love and pour out all of his riches in Christ to those whom he chose to have a particular love for. Election is the very heart of salvation is by grace alone. Without election, it is no longer by grace. Election is such a wonderful doctrine. I remember one of the, the greatest things that my... Um, my wife and I were talking about, and I still remember to this day when she understood it, we were just talking about election and she said, of course God had to cho choose me. I would have never chosen him. And that's the same for all of us. But he did. And that's a wonderful thing because we would have never chosen him because we were unable. The next thing we see the Father doing is he predestines us to adoption. The word predestined, 
it pretty much has a, a very similar meaning in that God predetermines, he foreordains and decides beforehand, he sets boundaries in place, all things, so that he may accomplish his will. That is to say that it is a fixed plan where every detail is carefully thought out, carefully accomplished according to the perfect will of God. It's certain. Not only does God elect us in eternity past, but he predestines all circumstances that bring us into that state of being adoption so that it can't be missed. It's as if to say, I choose you, I will adopt you, and it's certain, and I'll make sure of it. That's a wonderful thing, particularly to those who may have always felt rejected or may have possibly been abandoned or felt that your life was somewhat insignificant. Here we see the power and the wisdom of God stretching forth, giving everything to save and to adopt his people. In short, God has freely predetermined every step that has brought and led a Christian to being saved and brought into the family of God. It is God the Father who not only elects us and predestines us to adoption, but it is him that makes us accepted. Because the natural man is dead in our sin. We're alienated from God. We're separated from God and enemies of God, and we do not want him, nor will we make a decision to come to him, because we cannot. But it is God himself whom the offence was committed against, that works things out in such a way that he makes us, the criminals, accepted to himself whom the offences was committed against. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We committed offences against God. We're unable to reconcile ourselves to God, but he himself takes the initiative by grace, and makes us accepted to himself. This is grace, and this is love beyond our understanding. And he does this through the Son. So we look at the Son now, because how does the Father do this? Well, he does it in the Son, the second part of the triune God, the second person. And we read in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And just as a footnote here, why is salvation so certain and so perfect? Because here it says it is according to the riches of his grace. And because it is done in the perfect work of the Son. So we see that we have broken God's law, we have committed offences against God, but Christ, who is outside of time, outside of space, the creator of the whole universe, he became a man. And he became a man so he could fulfill the law on our behalf. He lived the sinless life. He fulfilled the law where we broke it. God's wrath cries out against us. Christ took that wrath upon himself. He satisfied justice. The justice that was crying out against me and you because of our offenses against God. Christ lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He satisfied the justice of God and he rose from the dead. Why is salvation sure? Because of Christ. Because he rose from the dead. Because he lived the perfect life. 
because he satisfied God's justice. While we were enslaved to sin, Christ bought us out from slavery. This word redemption is a brilliant word. It simply means a release affected by a payment or a ransom. That is to say that one is released because a sufficient payment has been made on their behalf. It has the idea of deliverance, a buying back of a slave, one who has been held captive, has now been set freed and rescued. Furthermore, not only does uh, Christ's atoning work save us and redeem us, it tells us that it's in Hebrews 9, it tells us that his own blood secures our eternal redemption. He secures it. He makes that payment and it is secure. And if that weren't enough, Hebrews 7 goes on to say that therefore he is able to save us to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ saves us by his finished work on the cross and he rose from the dead and is now interceding for us, those that are his, those whom Christ died for. This perfect work of salvation not only is done by the Father, but it is done in the Son and also through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we see, makes us alive. We see that in chapter 2, it tells us that God made us alive. And here in verse 8, in chapter 1, Paul is praising God because he gave us wisdom and understanding so that we may understand the good news of the gospel. In other words, when we were dead in our sin, slaves to our sin, following our sin because that's all we desired to do, that God, in his grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, removes the ignorance that is within us. That ignorance that shuts our ears to the gospel, that closes our eyes to Christ, and he replaces it with wisdom and understanding so that we may believe and come to him and be saved. Salvation is a supernatural act of God. Salvation is based on the fulfillment of God's promise. Let's look at Ezekiel 36 and we read this, the promise. In verse 25, and we see God's saving work so clear here. Then I, God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone and give your flesh a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And the best part is in verse 28. You shall be my people and I shall be your God. This is the language of salvation that's spoken of in the scriptures. It's absolute. It's definite. It's certain. Language for salvation, language like redeemed, purchased, saved, forgiven, justified. It's never redeemable or purchasable or savable or possibly forgiven 
or justifiable. It's a certain thing because it's wrought out of the perfections of God and his perfect will, which he initiated in eternity past. We read other language throughout the scriptures. In Jeremiah 32, he says things like, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. The Holy Spirit not only makes us new creatures, but he seals us, which is to say that he marks out those that are his. God puts his own mark on those that are his own possessions. And that mark is the promised Holy Spirit. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in this perfect plan of salvation to save God's people. In verse 14, it says that the Holy Spirit, if it's not already guaranteed, if you're not already convinced of the certainty, it says that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. Why is salvation so certain? And such a perfect work because it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee and the down payment which guarantees our inheritance. Now, if you've ever gone house hunting before and you may fall in love with a house that says under contract, don't lose heart. There's still an opportunity you can get that house because people often make a down payment without being approved for the final payment, without being approved for their loan, without being assured that they have the other funds. They make the down payment. And the thing is with the down payment, if you make the down payment and you do not follow through with the contract, you lose your down payment. Salvation is not like this. God makes a down payment because he has what it takes to fulfill the commitment that he made in eternity past to save those whom he chose to. And he makes that down payment because it is assurance to the Christian that they will be saved. Furthermore, if you were to look on the other side of things, if someone were to fall away, could God lose part of himself? Could God lose his down payment may it never be thought of or said when God chooses to save he saves and he saves to the uttermost and the Holy Spirit is absolute guarantee of this work of salvation salvation is so perfect that it is not only the perfect divine nature whereby salvation flows out of it's not just the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit it's not just the perfect character of God. It's not just the perfect attributes of God, but God's motivation itself secures and makes it absolutely perfect and certain. Look at verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, listen, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Verse 11 sums it up that says that God worketh all things after the counsel of his will. It's absolutely certain. He does it to the praise of his glory. He does it for his name's sake and it is certain and God will not fail. 
You and, I, you and I may fail, our friends and family may fail, but God never fails. And he's certainly not so foolish as to leave it up to men. So now as we consider, as we so briefly look at, and I, I, forgive me for being so brief because it really deserves much more attention than that, but nevertheless, as we consider this amazing plan and, and purpose of God, all of this wisdom, all of this power of the triune God to save his people from their sins. What does this mean for us? I wish to make three points. Three points as we look at this, our eyes should be set in a certain direction. Our heart should uh, be driving a certain way. And I wish to make three points that, that I believe is the correct response for the Christian, or, or the only response. Number one is that the Christian's joy and strength and security comes from the Lord. Our joy is built on God fulfilling his promise to save his people from their sins. The Christian's joy is built on knowing God, that we have been reconciled to God. We don't glory in our wisdom. We don't glory in our might. We don't glory in our riches. But as Jeremiah said, we glory that we know and understand God. Our joy comes from knowing that God fulfilled his promise when he said that he will forgive our iniquity and our sin will be remembered no more. It's not in money. It's not in circumstances. It's not in whether things are going good or bad. Our joy comes from what Paul said in Colossians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive together with Christ. And that he has forgiven our trespasses. That he has wiped out the handwriting for the requirements that is against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Our joy lies here. It's not in material things. It's not in whether we are doing as good as we would like to do or whether life is giving us the results in which we would prefer. It's not in whether we are sick or healthy, or whether we are rich or poor, or whether we are free or in prison, whether we have a good marriage or a bad marriage, whether we have good children or bad children, whether we feel this way or that way. Our joy comes from the unchanging and unmovable rock who is our God, who is our shield, who is our deliverer and our defence. We look to him and we find security. We look to him and we find joy and peace and comfort, not in those other things. They can't give us anything. Circumstances change like the wind, don't they? But our God's faithfulness stretches past the heavens. And his love is enduring. His mercy is forever. His goodness is the deepest of deepest wells to draw from to draw a constant stream of comfort and peace and joy. Our joy comes from our knowledge of him who made the heavens and the earth. 
When disaster comes our way, when hardships and trials and great loss grip our hearts, our eyes look to him who made the heavens and the earth. Our eyes look to Christ who rose from the dead and secured our redemption. Our security and our hope are not in the things of this world, but they are in the living God who made this world, who made the heavens and the earth. This divine work of salvation is the very heart of all that is truly good in our life. We have been chosen before time began. We have been elected. We have been adopted. We have been given wisdom and understanding. We have been made accepted. We have been redeemed out of our slavery to sin. We have been bought with the most precious price and we are his. We have been sealed and guaranteed an inheritance by God himself. We've been made his own possession. We know that salvation is a certain and perfect work because it flows out of the perfect divine triune God and his perfect divine attributes which is worked out in time by the perfect work of Christ and is applied by the perfect work of the Holy Spirit according to the perfect, unchanging will of God. And it is all to the praise of his most perfect, glorious grace. We who were at one time dead in our sin and living for our own praise and our own glory, but God has now saved us and he's rescued us and he's redeemed us with a purpose. He's made us his own possession Therefore, our lives are to be to his praise and to his glory. The second point is that because we have been set apart wholly to be blameless in love, that our goal as Christians should to be pursuing holiness, consecration, purity of heart. Our lives should be marked with thankfulness and adoration to God whereby our greatest goal in life is to give him glory. And this is the, the direction in where we're trying to head today, to look at what God has done, to look at the great work, and to head in this direction with praise and adoration towards God and a desire to be like Christ. This is our number one calling as a Christian, to give God glory and to be like Christ. What was the number one mark of Christ? He did the will of the Father. That's our goal. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to the Christian that all of God's power and wisdom has been poured out in this great plan of salvation? What is our response? That we should be holy and blameless. That we should serve God in sincerity of love. Our heart, mind, soul and strength our greatest desire should be to be faithful to this God, to walk blamelessly, to be single-minded in our worship of God, to not make peace with sin. That is that we wake up in the morning and we, we don't, we're not purposeless. We're not walking around with no direction. We have a direction. We're God's purchased possessions. And we ought to be have a desire to be single-minded in that we don't make peace with sin. 
We are consecrated unto God. We're waging war against sin. We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Why? We're his. We're here to do the will of the Father. We're here to live holy and blameless and to reflect Christ. Why? Because he saved us. And he's worthy of this. Our days should start and end with a single-minded desire to worship God. And we won't do it perfectly, but nevertheless, it is that direction which we long to head in. As we read in Luke 14, it says this, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Not only does Christ command that we give all, but he's worthy of this. Ephesians 1.10 marks out God's ultimate purpose. He says that in the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are on heaven, in heaven and on earth in him. So everything in the heavens and the earth will be summed up and put under the lordship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, everything within us ought to be under the lordship of Christ and into submission to him, because that's God's plan. Every part of our being should aim at being a song of praise to God who made the heavens and the earth, because he's worthy of this, because he adopted us and made us his own children. He is our father, and we are his children. And finally, this great work should cause us to, number one, praise and give adoration to God. Number two is to pursue consecrated and holy lives and to be faithful to God. And number three, finally, we should point the whole world to Christ. Why? Because that's what God did. God's whole plan and purpose points to Christ from the very beginning. All of the prophets, all of the types, all of the shadows, everything points to Christ. Because God's eternal plan was to save for himself a people, and those people are saved in Christ. So our goal is to point people to Christ, that they will come to him, because we want to see people saved, because that's what God wants. And we ought to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel because that's what God did. And I'm not saying that we should be a martyr or anything like that. But certainly what I am saying is that we should be able to put aside our self-reservations and our, our, our fear of man and our willingness to be accepted by man, that we should be able to lay that aside and proclaim Christ to anyone and everyone. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that looking at this passage today, has, has, has encouraged us to head in that direction, that we may praise God, that we may live for his glory, and that we may proclaim his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God, and we thank you, Lord, that you are gracious to save. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to the end and that you are working in your people. Father, help us in them areas that we struggle, where we are weak and we battle. Help us to overcome that we may live to your glory and your glory alone. Help us to be a people that praise you with our lips and with our lives. Help us, Lord, to be a people that are faithful in, in the pursuit of holiness and godliness. 
Help us to be a people that are faithful in proclaiming your Son, that we may be to your glory and your glory alone. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.